Good evening, everyone. We're very close to Purim now. Whenever the fast fall on Shabbat, it will fall the Thursday before. This Thursday, Ta'anit Esther. Then Motei Shabbat, Megillah. For the, for the night, and then Sunday, the Purim day. A few words about Purim for those who need to refresh their memory. Uh, Purim, it's a rabbinical holiday. It's very important. The rabbinical holiday, no matter what happens in the future, even in days of Mashiach, no one can ever cancel them. This is the power of the Chachamim that Hashem gave in the Torah. And the uh, holiday of Purim, as results of the miracle, the huge miracle that the entire Jewish nation was supposed to be killed by Haman and everything turned around, not only they didn't get killed, they actually took revenge on all the anti-Semites, all the ones who were against the Jews in those days. So it turned from a, almost a horrible holocaust into a great days of joy and happiness. As a result of that, the Chachamim made a special holiday, which is already more than 2,400 years, you know, that we celebrate every, every year all over the world. And a few of the things that applies on Purim, when we know in the time of in the time of Purim, Achashverosh was the king of Persia, which was in charge, in control of 127 countries. And then he decided to make a big party, a meal, that took six months. Six months. Today, if there's a wedding, six hours, it already looks too long. Six hours, what a long wedding. Whoa, especially the Sunday weddings. They start early, that they have more time. And people live usually in the middle. They don't stay to the end. It's too long for them already. Six months, people coming and going. It was really like a show. What was he showing there? All the treasures that from Bet HaMikdash. He was showing them an amazing show that people came to see all these amazing treasures. And also he made a department, Glad Kosher, for the Jews, with the best Ashgacha. Everything, supposedly, the food is glad kosher, and every, all the religious Jews did not care. They went to that party. Food wasn't a problem. There was other issues in this party. And only Mordechai, which was the chief rabbi, was standing there and protesting, and nobody cared. And this is a generation that all the Jews were religious. Why? Because Haman, when he came to present his case to Achashverosh, he said to him, there's a strange nation, they dress different, they speak different, they all dress different, which means there was a big difference between the Jews and the Goyim in those days. But still, they decided to join that party, and as a result of that, Hashem got so angry at them that it almost, almost created a horrible holocaust. In reality, the decree was made. But then when they took out all the children from, you know, into Shushan, they were all standing there crying for three days, fasting, you know, with ashes and sacks. 
reading Tehilim, crying to Hashem, and with the political effort of Mordechai and Esther in between the palace, everything in the last minute turned around. Not that many people know that their revenge wasn't an immediate revenge. See, for Haman making a decree, the decree fell on next year. It was a long, long time until it's supposed to go into action. And one reason for that is it's not like today. Today you have cars, you have trucks, you have weapons, you have all kinds of ways today. If you want to kill a nation today, it's not so complicated. You gather the people, within a month or two you can finish the job. But in primitive days like those, until you gather them, you need to bring all of them into a place. It's all by walking until you locate them. There's no computer. Computers search on the names for you, addresses. It's a different world. It takes a very long time it's to prepare for such a holocaust. The question is, why the Jews waited for the revenge also that long? So one answer could be the same answer. What do you think? It's so easy to find all the anti-Semites. Most of them were anti-Semites, but they were looking for the active ones, the one who participated in the final solution. What was it, the number? 75,000 or something, right? In the Megillah, it says that they are abed, you know, a lot of people. It's not, uh, it was a serious revenge. Just in Shusha and Abira, if I remember correctly, it was 500 people which was like the Manhattan of today, because this is where all the political institutions were there. And you should know, Jews did not live there. It wasn't a place for Jews. The Jews lived where the Jews lived, in the religious areas, in the suburbs, outside. That's why they needed another day to go to Shushan Abira, and it's tomorrow. The actual actions in Shushan took place the next day, because until they had to cross, I read in one of the books that they had water around it. They had to go also to cross, like, like a toll, like a, like a bridge or, or with boats, until they get to the other side. It took a long time. So one reason was that it obviously takes a long time to prepare such a thing. But the second reason is, when Haman sent his letters to 127 countries, get ready for the 13th of Adar, that comes in a few months, the people did not know exactly what to get ready for. They were waiting for another order. So the Jews used the order of Haman for their own good. That's what they really did here. Because the Jews didn't have the power that the Haman, Ahasuerus gave him the ring, and he used the, the, the stamp of the ring, and the, and the Megillah already emphasized when he stamped the stamp of the king, you cannot cancel it. That's it. It's an order. There's no way to cancel it. So the mazal here, the ashgacha of Hashem, of course, the good luck here that was that Haman did not write that next year we're going to kill all the Jews. He just told them to get ready for something amazing that is going to happen. But they didn't. There were rumors, of course. I mean, you know how it is. Like in politics, there's a lot of rumors. But nobody knew for sure. So all of a sudden, when the day came, the Jews already got the power that Haman got from Ahasuerus. And already those people were waiting. The nation were waiting for something being in that day. And that's when the Jews took, took it into action. And they basically executed all the haters of the Jewish nation. 
and Hashem and the Torah. And this is briefly the story. The Chachamim say, thanks to this, we have four mitzvot. One is reading Megillah. We do it at night, we're doing it in a day, twice. Saudat Purim, on a Sunday, Sunday noon, afternoon, we make a fancy meal, just like we do in a Yom Tov. The difference in this meal is that in regular Yom Tov, you eat meat, you drink wine, you enjoy, no problem. And over here in this meal, there's mitzvah to drink a lot of wine, which means to get drunk. Not what you think to get drunk. You see somebody is dozing like this on the street. They ended up in a hospital with their stomach poisoning, alcohol poisoning. That's not only it's not a mitzvah, that's a huge sin. If a Jew ended up in a public place getting drunk, not only on Purim, any day of his life, and he ended up in a paramedic's hands or in a hospital or in an emergency room, and they look at them and say, look at these Jews, how they behave. You know, worse than all these drunks in the bars in, in London, it used to be in the old days. They cleaned them out in the meantime. The government, when I was just in London, my host told me it used to be the culture of this place. A lot of people after war, they go to drink. But so the city started to clean it because they already knew that it gives them horrible reputation in the world. Or in a soccer field, in all the games, they're all drinking nonstop beer and whiskey and all kinds of drinks, and they kill each other. And in games, you know, it's violence, lots of violence. The alcohol doesn't bring anything good, that's for sure. But what's the point of drinking to begin with? That's the whole point, to have control, which means to be mevusam. Mevusam is like putting perfume. What does it mean? You have like, like eternal perfume. What does it mean? That it makes you in such a state of mind that you're still in control, you're not doing anything silly, but it brings your mood to a very high level. It gets to a point that if you know that you go to some Gdolei Torah in Purim, that after they drink a few good glasses of wine, then, then they release knowledge that usually it's hard to get out of them in the rest of the year. Either because they're humble or they hide it, they're not interested to make a show of. But with the help of the alcohol, everything is coming out naturally. And nobody really in the time of like they drank few lechaims, you know, he doesn't really think about pride right now when he comes to speak divreto. I once was a witness, one of my rabbis in the past, we went to visit him and pour him and so that pour him. It was already in a, after a few bottles of wine there in a the table. And one of the people asked him, First of all, you can see right away that he speaks completely different than the way he speaks in yeshiva all year. Right away, like a different person. Uh, one of the things he say, which we never heard from him the entire year, he started to praise the Sfaradim. He say, and he's Ashkenazi, so he started to praise the Sfaradim, how the Sfaradim respect the Chachamim by kissing their hand, and that's the right way it should be. And he's a completely Ashkenazi rabbi, you know. And he never said it in yeshiva. Never even noticed that, never paid attention to it. All of a sudden, the truth came out, what he's thinking. He was admiring it, but he never showed any sign in it. This is the example of how a person feels loose and free to say things that he may not say in a different time. Also, one more thing was happening there. He said, you can give me any verse from the Tanakh, from the Tanakh, which is... <laughs> tens of tens of thousands of, of verses in a Tanakh, 
any verse you want, and I'll give you a two hours speech about it. <laughs> and there was one wise guy there. He gave him such a verse, I doubt that the five people in the world knows it. <laughs> Where he got that verse out, I don't know. Everyone was thinking, oh, he probably won't have anything to say. Believe it or not, he started to shoot, and he talked and talked. And we already started, to, we forgot about the speech. He continued to talk and talk, and people come and people go, and he's like, until he fell asleep. But this is just to show you some of this happiness of Purim. So remember, if a person knows that after drinking one or two glasses of wine, he already begins to do stupid things, he's not allowed to drink. Not even in Purim. Why? Because to make a rabbinical mitzvah, and then to make a huge sin from the Torah at the same time, that's not a mitzvah. It's mitzvah ktana that ba be'avera gdola. Mitzvah ba be'avera, even both of them from the Torah, it's not allowed. Mitzvah that creates a sin at the same time, it's better not to do this mitzvah, not allowed. Especially if the mitzvah is, let's say, 40, and the sin is 80. Then what do you do by that? You're losing. Chilul Hashem is the worst sin in the Torah, with no hesitation, with no doubt. Mitzvah, to be happy in Purim, to drink, it's a rabbinical obligation. No one goes to hell for not drinking on Purim. But people can go there if they do Chilul Hashem. So obviously we understand the difference. So remember that, the fact that we hear every year that some of the students from Yeshivot ended up in a hospital drunk and they had to stay there overnight, or they do stupid things on the street, not only doesn't add any credit to us, that actually ruins our reputation and you and create a massive Chilul Hashem. So remember, everyone has to know his limit. Some people can drink 10 glasses of full, full glasses of wine. They're really in a good mood. They're never going to say stupid things. OK. As long as you feel where is my limit, you get to your limit, you have to, to know where to stop. Discipline is very important. Then, so we said, mitzvah of the Saudat Purim. And uh, we say already, kriyat megillah in the night and the day, mitzvah of Saudat Purim and to be mevusam with wine. And then, very important mitzvah, mishloach manot ish lereu. Every person has to send at least two kinds of food, based on the words mishloach, at least one mishloach, one sending. Manot, it's plural, so it has to be at least two. So two kinds of food. Now today, it's a little bit problematic. Because uh, people transfer Mishlochem Anot one from another. It's a, it's a big market, trading. You get from Ruven, you give it to Shimon, you get from this, you give it to him. You, it goes from hand to hands, you know. He gives it to you, now it's yours. An hour later, someone knock on your door, you don't have what to give. So you take one of the ones you got and you give it. Sorry. The problem is, yeah, the problem is that people do not always know who this person is. You know him. This Ruven gave you Mishloch Manot, and he gave you something that his wife cooked. It's no problem. You know you can eat it because you know they're reliable people. But once you transfer it to this guy Shimon, he doesn't know this Ruven who he is. He has rice and uh, I don't know what chicken there or uh, anything else or some salads or cake or anything like that that is homemade. They're not gonna eat. So better to avoid this to give things that have that comes from an official store that has the kashrut of it, the stamp of the kashrut on it. 
You know, Badat, you know, it's Rabbanut. People know, you know, if it's Chalav Israel, you know, if it's not Chalav Israel. Like these people look at that one second, they know if they're allowed to eat it or not. That's it, let's, let's prevent complications. Uh, okay, so at least two kinds, men to men, women to women. It's not madness that men will give gifts, gifts to a woman. Some even say it's Safekidushin, it creates between them relationship. So what's the, what's the, what is it is? The man gives to men and the wives give to wives. This is how it is. Also, very important mitzvah, perhaps the most important of the entire Purim, is matanot laevionim. You have to give charity to the poor people. Now, charity to the poor people, the more the better. There's few things about it. One, everyone who comes to you on a day of Purim, you must give him something. You don't have, you don't have. And if you have, it's different than the rest of the year. The rest of the year, you have your budget, you have how much you want to give. And if you gave enough already, more this week, and someone else comes to you, you can say to him, I don't have. You have in a bank. But you mean, I don't have for you right now. Maybe two weeks from now, you come, I'll give you. All right now, I already gave a lot. So this week, I don't have. I don't have no problem. Purim is a different day. Kol pochet yad notnim lo. Why? Because the whole concept of the day is matanot laevionim, to give to the poor people, that the poor people would also be happy. So that's why it's a very common day that in Purim you see hundreds of hundreds of people collecting, teenagers, children, and even if they collect for themselves. It can be a 15, 16 years old boy, you know he's collecting for himself. Rest of the year you can come and say to him, hey, who gave you permission to collect for yourself? What, are you collecting tzedakah? You don't have what to eat? You have what to eat. You have a place to sleep. You sleep by your parents. Why are you collecting money? It's Chilul Hashem. Purim is a different day. Purim, you close your eyes. You give. You don't have to give ton, but you give what you can afford. Plus, there's one more thing, is that the best investment always when it comes to give to poor people, you can kill two birds with one stone. Always try to aim that your money that goes to the poor people will go to Amelei Torah. What does it mean, Amelei Torah? It's people that are poor, but not just poor people on the street sitting playing backgammon. You know, there is also poor. He gave up life. He sit all day and play cards in the ocean parkway there, or chess, you know, on, the, on those tables there and the benches. It's poor. <laughs> if you don't give him, how is he going to eat? But if you have him, what we call in the Lashon of the Gemara, Yoshvei Kranot, people that sit in the corners, which means it's an expression of what we call today bombs. People who do nothing with their life. All they want to do is lay down all day, do nothing. So even someone like this has to eat. But you're going you're gonna to let him die just because he's lazy or because he doesn't want to work or he doesn't want to take care of himself? No, what can you do? Still give him something to eat. But if you have the choice, why would you give someone like that if you can give someone who sits and learns Torah in the highest level? It's called Amelei Torah. Not just someone who learns Torah. Amelei Torah, Amal means full effort. Like someone who sits and kills himself day after day, night after night, learning Gemara in the highest level, giving to someone like that a nice amount of money on the day of Purim, it's not only double and triple your mitzvah, sometimes you can make it hundreds of times greater than just giving anyone. You should know that, always keep it in mind. And this is, by the way, applies not only on Purim, for the entire year, every day of your life. 
when you finally want to give to somebody poor money, make sure it's someone who's Amel Torah for your own good. You couldn't find where you are in a situation, you give it to anyone. But there's priorities. What's the priority? Just like in a stock market. You have one stock that gives you 5% profit and one that gives you 50% profit. So you, so you ask, it's not fair. Why you put all the money on a 50%? Put something on a company will only give you 5% profit. Have mercy on them. So what do you say? I'm not having mercy on them. I'm having mercy on myself. <laughs> right? This is what it is. Tzedakah, tzedakah, charity. It's a pure investment. You're not doing anyone a favor. Get it out of your head. All these people who give to the poor, who give to yeshivot, or who give to make people religious, or all these things, sponsoring CDs. If you ever thought that you're doing anyone a favor, think a million times again. Not one time again. Million times again. You did nothing for anyone besides yourself. It's pure profit. All goes to you. Ah, that Jew would benefit. That poor person is not, uh, is not poor anymore. That hungry person is not starving anymore. Of course. But the profit goes to you. Basically, you should not. You are the one who gain all the profit here. So therefore, since it's a profit, it's an investment, you might as well invest in a place that will give you the highest profit. And if you follow this model that I just told you, you're going to be surprised. You can be you and your friend in a lifetime, in a period of 50 years. You gave $100,000 to Tzedakah, and your friend gave 100000 for Tzedakah. And your reward can be a million times bigger than him for the same amount of money. Why? One is where you invested your money, as I said thousands of times already in the last 20 years. And sometimes people listen. Most of them don't. But sometimes people realize what I explained, that not only it makes sense, this is what the Torah says. It's not just a personal advice here. Even if it was my personal advice, it's still a beautiful advice because it's 100% proven. Here I make more than here. What's the question here? But it's not my personal advice. This is the Talmud, the Gemara, the Chachamim says. La'ashkia in Amelei Torah, it's a much higher level. Same thing if you have a mitzvah of building a yeshiva, building the building, which would be, I don't know, $2 million. And then they need, two, they need $4 million, $2 million to build the building, and $2 million to support the learners after for X amount of years. Which one is a much higher mitzvah? Support the learners is nothing to compare. Nothing to compare. Here you're buying silver, here you're buying diamonds for the same money. Yes, the building is important. You need a place. You need uh, chairs. You need floor. You need ceiling. You need. Without it, how, uh, where are they going to learn? It's a very nice mitzvah to build. But to support the actual Torah is nothing to compare. Same thing, you buy soap for the yeshiva. Or you actually give the money to the guy who sits and learns. Soap, it's important. You need soap. You clean your hand, you clean the kitchen. You need soap. You need toilet paper. You need uh, light bulbs. You need all these things. But it's not the same. Like your money was produced for Torah 100%. And that's why they say in the Beta Mikdash, and everyone gave machatzita shekel, some of that went to a very high level of mitzvah. Some went to give food for the horses. The horses who carry all the weight. They also need food. Someone has to pay for it. So they take the money and they, and they pay for the food for the horses. So they ask, how come your money went to Kodesh HaKodeshim 
and his money went to give uh, straw for the horses. Wow, what is it, roulette? Lottery? You, the, the Kohen, the Kohanim turn it around. Oh, Reuven Kohen, his money goes to Kodesh HaKodashim. This guy, his money goes for the bathroom. How does it go? No. Kadosh Baruch Hu directed the donations to the right places. We have a proof in Masechet Baba Batra. It says over there that the prophet Yirmiya, he said to Hashem, the stingy people, the ones who do not like to share, do not want to help, do not want to give, if once in a while they have good spirit on them, that all of a sudden for one minute they became generous, and they finally wrote a check, or they finally gave donation to someone, please make sure that a crook will be the one who takes their donation. This is the words of the prophet. The prophet says if they finally do a favor once in a while, make sure somebody, some gambler or a drug addict or who knows what, will come and say, hey, I'm hungry, I'm starving. So he gave him $100 and the guy went to the casino to burn it. And sometimes on Shabbat. So then the guy said, what is it my fault? I see a guy, he comes with a yamaka to me and says, give me, I'm hungry. I gave him $100 and then I, later I found out he went to the casino. Is that my problem? The answer is, how do you know? You don't know. The answer is, you know that from Shamaim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent you that one. If you were more generous and you give more tzedakah, or you give the tzedakah with a pure heart, or that your money could be stolen, or other reasons. If your money is clean, and you make it in a kosher way, and you give it with all your heart, and you do it for the sake of heaven, and because this is what Hashem wants, not to gain anything in return from this guy or from the community, or they put your name on a building. If you did it 100% pure, it's guaranteed that Hashem will direct your money to the highest level. This is when it's not in your hand, like giving them a chatzita shekel. Everything goes into one box, and from there they distribute the money. It's not in your hand anymore. But what's in your hand, why are you counting on a miracle? When it's, when it's in your hand, you have 10 different causes. You can investigate and choose where to put the money. Where will I have the greatest profit? Then it's in your hand. What's not in your hand, it's not in your hand. Same thing like the shul, uh, they, need, they say we have to collect, I don't know, $10,000, the shul is in a big deficit. We are here, we are there, we are here. So everyone gives money, and in the end, they take the money and they write checks to here, to that, to the electric, to the rabbi. So if you ask a person, you just taught $500 check to the shul, and your friend did. Your $500 went to the electric company, and his $500 went to the rabbi who teach Torah all day there. So the other one get angry. It's not fair. Well, my money went to, I don't know, Con Edison. And his money went to this rabbi who sits and learns Torah and teaches Torah all day. Why? The answer is, ask Hashem. Why are you asking him? <laughs> he writes, Hashem only knows. When the rabbi writes from the shul, 500 here, 500 there, 100 there, 500 there. He doesn't know where it comes from. It's all one mutual account. But how it will be distributed, every check has a tag name on it. Proven, Yitzchak, Levi. The Gabbai doesn't know. The Gabbai writes the same checks all the time. But which money will go to where? It's Hashem's decision. 
And what do you think? Hashem makes decision out of nowhere with no logic? Of course not. Hashem sees who you are. I saw one time there's a, there's a in Yerushalayim there's a place that it's open seven days a week all year around. It never closes up. The lights is always on and there is always people there. No matter what time you come in, two, three, four, five, four in the morning, always people sitting and learning there. All the time. And this place is more than 100 years old. They have over there, they have a, a, a note over there on the wall how, how it started in the old days with some old Isari uh, Talki, like 200 years ago when there was different coins and the Goim were in Israel, the Turks. How this shul was open. And the story was that they needed X amount of money. So two partners gave half and half. And one of them was in charge of the construction. When the money ran out, they needed another half. They, he gives half, he gave half. Now they need another 50% more because they didn't estimate right the cost. So the one who was in charge of the construction, he put the extra 50% without telling his partner. And later the partner found out that it actually cost more money. He got angry. Why didn't tell me to give another half from the extra expense? They ended up going to Bedin, fighting why he did not participate me in a mitzvah fully. So when Hashem saw two Jews are fighting who's going to give more donation to the place, he puts full blessing on that building. And then there's another place, not in the United States, that cost $20 million to build the place. And someone from that country told me, not one time you'll find a minyan in this place. Just always empty, beautiful, shiny, clean, some dust. Nobody, no, no activity, nothing. $20 million. Sometimes two million shul, 22. The two produce billions of mitzvot every year. The other one doesn't produce 100 mitzvot. Why? Depend who gave. Depend how he gave. Depend on many, many things. So let's move on. So it says like this. Purim Vashti was the wife of of King Ahasuerus, a very wicked woman, not modest. And one of the things she liked to do is to take Jewish girls from Bet Yaakov Yeshiva. There's no Bet Yaakov yet, just that you get the concept. Jewish girls from good homes, and she forced them to walk on Shabbat naked. You don't deal with them. You don't, they kill you. So they're afraid of her. So what was their end? That Hashem made Achashverosh drunk. Hashem didn't need to make him drunk. He was drunk naturally. He drinks all the time. So what happened? Once he was drunk, you know, too much bismoishmo. <laughs> what happened? He said, bring my wife naked and everyone see. Why? What, what person would want such a thing? The answer is that the Gemara say, come and see the, the difference on the conversation between the Jews and the Goim of those days. The Goim were arguing which women are prettier from this country, from that country, because every, every woman in the, you know, in the kingdom there from different nationality. Like today, in New York. Where are you from? Italy. Where are you from? England. Where are you from? Denmark. Where are you from? United States. Different women. So they argue which one are the prettiest women in the world. So he wanted to brag. So he said, bring her, but not just bring her. Bring her naked that they will see. His own queen. 
So what happened? She got measure for measure, as it always is. Measure for measure. She made them walk naked. Hashem made her come naked in front of everyone. And she refused. And then they killed her. And Hashem already prepared the solution to the problem. Like we say in Hebrew, mechin trufa lamaka. That's what we say every day in Baruch Shamar, Baruch Gozer, Umkayem. Hashem makes a decree, right away gives you the energy to past that decree. But not only that, the Gemara says, whenever HaKadosh Baruch makes a decree on the Jewish nation, he always prepares the medicine first. He sends a sickness, the medicine is already ready. If you check in the history, you see when something bad is about to start, Hashem already prepared the salvation before. And over here, Haman is about to make a decree to kill all the Jews. What does Hashem do? He makes this whole story with Achashverosh and Vashti, that Vashti will get killed, and now he has to get another queen. And they get Esther, that she's going to go into the, into the palace, and from Esther the salvation would come. You see, the process of the salvation already started before Haman actually made his plan. Not that many people pay attention. That Hashem saw it coming, and right before that, he prepared already the salvation without Esther inside the, the palace. That's it, it will be the end of it. Esther is the one who convinced Achashverosh to kill Haman. Esther is the one who makes the meal, inviting Achashverosh and Haman, Haman falling on a bed, and Achashverosh walks in, and he sees Haman on his wife's bed, and he goes crazy, and right away everything turns around within minutes. After a preparation of a year for a holocaust, all of a sudden it turns around in minutes. Why? This is the way Hashem does it. Women also has to hear Megillah, because they also participated in the same miracle. Even though it's the, it's mitzvah, asesha zman grama, it's depend on time, one day a year, at night and a day, there is a set time for it, and usually women dismiss from it. But, you, but when it comes to Pirsuma de Nisa, to publish the miracle that Hashem does, and women were also part, also part of the miracle, there's no difference between women and men. That's why women that don't have little children, they come to the shul and they hear it. They have little children, usually in religious areas, they make a second reading of the Megillah for the women in one of the houses. You know, because the husband goes back home, and keep, he watch the children, and the women goes and gather to a place and someone reads for them. So I think we covered, uh, you know, briefly as much as we could, more or less the laws of, the, of Purim. The children put customs. One of the reasons for this custom, I want to ask where this, where this custom came from, that people put all kinds of masks. And the answer is that in a Megillah it says, that everything turned around to the opposite. So that, that's why people change who they are to something else. This, because everything is like the whole concept of Purim is v'na'afochu. And there's other reasons for it, and that's it for, for now. Now let's move on. It says like this. I said before, and sometimes people receive 
food from a, another person, they're afraid to eat it because they don't know how reliable this person is. How do you know when you're allowed to eat this food or not? Because not everyone was there to check in his kitchen what ingredients he used and how he cooked and what knives he's using and all these things, right? So what's, what's the rule? If somebody gives you food and you don't rely on his kashrut, what's worse, to tell him, I'm sorry, I don't eat food of people I don't know, and then you offend him very much, especially if he's kosher, he will feel even worse. If he knows he's not kosher, he'll feel bad, but at least he knows that you, you just got safe from him. But if he knows he's 100% reliable and you tell him, I cannot trust you, I can't eat your food, then you're actually insulting him. And if it's in front of people, then it's even worse. It's like spilling his blood, which is a definitely a big sin from the Torah to insult a person. And the same thing is the Torah is so very strict of not eating anything that is not strictly kosher. So how do we find the balance between two contradictions like this? What do we do? It happens one time to the Rambam. No, I'm sorry. It happens to a different rabbi. And he came to a place, and they told him, Rabbi, eat. It's very strictly kosher. Eat, 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 eat. He didn't want to eat. So he told them, I can't eat. The doctor does not allow me to eat this food. So they heard the doctor does not allow. They left him alone. <laughs> so after he went out, his helper said, Rabbi, which doctor? I never know you went to a doctor. Well, you don't feel good. He said, no, no, I was having in mind the Rambam. Rambam is also a doctor. He writes in, in, in the laws of kosher food who you should eat from and who you should not eat from. So what's the rule? So the rule is like this. Adam shemachmir b'ma'achalim When he comes to someone, if this person has chazaka, chazaka means certainty. Certainty. What certainty? Is, no, is known as a kosher person. He keeps Shabbat. He keeps kosher. They always see him in a kosher butcher. They see him buying kosher. I mean, always, never, there was never suspicion against him. And this person buys kosher food, even though he's not the most religious person in the world. Not a rabbi. He's not an ultra fanatic. But he's known as buying kosher food. Somebody like that serves you food, you have to eat from him. It would be worse than to insult him not to take it, than not to eat it. So now, if you still have a doubt about him personally, and you don't want to eat from his food, don't put yourself together with him around food, because you know it's coming. We're going to serve you something. So to prevent of insulting a person, I just don't go there. You go there. You must eat already. Why? Because now you're there, and he's going to serve you, and you don't eat. First, you offend him, and if it's in front of people, you can ruin his certainty, his reputation. Because what's people going to say now tomorrow on the street? Oh, we were in the house of this day, and he served the rabbi. The rabbi didn't touch the food. Didn't touch anything in his house. So what does it mean? That the rabbi knows something about him. All of a sudden, tomorrow, the whole town is saying that it's Mechalel Shabbat. This is the way people are. They can't just tell the story the way it was. They have to add salt and pepper and some spicy and sauce. You know, all of a sudden, he's a murderer. Why? Because the rabbi wasn't uh, hungry that day. 
nothing to do with his certainty. But I wasn't angry. I don't know. I didn't feel good. You know. So this is it. Now there's another question. What happens if you are extra, extra strict? Only badats, only the highest level of kashrut. Average kashrut, you don't rely on. You don't want to eat. This is the way you are in your home. Or when you go to a restaurant, you only go to a very high level of, of supervision. Now what happens if you made a picnic somewhere and uh, you have guests that you know they're not like you. They eat kosher, but they don't, they're not strict like you only by that. They eat rabbanut. They eat regular supervisions. The question is, you have now two options. To give him a piece of meat that costs you $15, because it's extra, extra high supervision. That's why you pay extra a lot more, because there's more than one. There's another one who supervises the supervisor, you know. Or you can give him a regular glad kosher meat with an average supervision that costs you only $10. And for you, you get the special one. Same thing when it comes to matzah. You pay $25 a pound for extra special matzot. And for the guests and the lala seder that you know they're hardly religious, you give them kosher matzot, but not $25 a pound with the extra, extra supervision, $17 a pound. It's also good, it's also with supervision, it's also kosher, but it's not in the same level like your matzot. Is it allowed to do? Or since you hold that for you this is the right way, then you have to do the same to everyone. What do you think? Does it go by the either or it goes by the server? That's really the question here. By the server. So you ask, if this person would go now to the supermarket to buy matzot, which one would he buy for himself? $17, no? It's good enough for him. He won't buy for 25 with the extra special ashgacha. So why is it my obligation to get him something that for him it means nothing? This is for him good enough. I'm giving him what's good enough for him. But the question is now, since in my eyes it's not good enough, do I have an obligation to give him just like the same way I love myself, I have to love him, which means I must give him the same one? Or since he doesn't see anything bad in it, he won't be offended that I'm giving him something that he would buy himself anyway, then in that case it's fine. What do you think? So the answer is Adam Shemachmir Bemachalim. יכול לתת הכשר רגיל ללא חומרות ליהודי אחר שאינו מחמיר. Translation, someone that is extra special in kashruyot, always go to the most strict one and pay double and sometimes even more. When he needs to get to somebody else, his obligation is to give him according to what he holds of. Not according to me, according to him. As long as there is kosher supervision on it, not uh, reform, conservative, well, they, eat, they eat pork on Yom Kippur. You cannot rely on their kashrut. So if it's an orthodox rabbi who gave this kashrut, after all, it's people who know the halacha, it's people who comes and they know how to check, 
maybe the supervision may not be in the same streak and frequent supervision like the Badats, for instance. I'm just using names because I don't really know exactly today. You have to be in this field. Also, it's not good to ask just any rabbi you know questions about kashruyot because it's a separate field. If you're not from that field, there's no way to know. If your job is to be mashgiach of kashruyot, you, you are actually supervising restaurant, you're supervising things, or you're dealing with them on a daily basis on a bed din, then you know which one is very good, which one is not. Just someone who knows all the Talmud by heart, and he knows the entire Shulchan Aruch by heart, he knows what's kosher, what's not, but he's not in the kitchen of that factory. He doesn't know. How is he going to tell you if they're good or not? Based on rumors on the street? Based on what the competition say, Lashon Ara? Which is a very common thing. Everyone speaks Lashon Ara about his competitors. If we start going by what the rumors on the street are, we're not allowed to eat in one store in the whole world. Not one store in the world is completely clean from gossip and Lashon Ara. So in that case, no one is good. So the answer is, we don't go by what we hear. We go someone who is from the field of Kashruyot, and he can tell you, oh, this place, I've been there, for instance, about the chickens. I asked one time about the different factories, Violent, Empire, Satmer, different factories of chicken. So I asked someone, who do I ask? Someone who visited the places of the Shechita. This one, excellent, very good will always be good. This one is also good. Also, Shochatim, there's one problem, he said to me. What is it? It's such a big factory. So many thousands of thousands of chickens are there every day. So it's very difficult to make it 100% perfect supervision. Why? When it becomes industrial, when it becomes too commercial, it's not as easy to supervise when you have a an average small factory, that everything is under the sight of one mashgiach, he can go from one to one and check. When you have so many hundreds of hundreds of shochatim, it's very, very difficult. So you say, of course, they go by the highest standards, but since it's such a big factory, I wouldn't rely on it, he told me. Now that they're bad, I never caught them doing anything bad. But the chance that something bad will be there is higher than this place, for instance. See, this is a guy who knows what's happening, because he was inside. Same thing by the matzot. They all write beautiful things on their boxes. Shmura, mishat from the time we cut the wheat, we supervised that no rain came on it, 100%, it's all by, by Jews, it's within 18 minutes. They all write it. The question is, are all the writing are equal? The answer is, of course not. Some places is a lot more machmir. They're willing to pay more money. They get more reliable people. They get more supervisors. And some places less. Not necessarily that the other place, Chaz Shalom gave you not kosher matzot. But if there is a chance that something will go wrong, just for the chance alone, sometimes better to pay a little bit more, not to take any kind of chance. So this is a, this is a very common thing. It's a big, big common thing. One person has a, a, a standards of supervision in his party, and now he has 300 guests. If he has to give the 300 guests his supervision, the party would cost him double. So the answer is he allowed to give them what they eat anyway, as long as it's kosher. What happens if these people don't care at all to eat kosher? 
They're all secular. They don't care about kosher. And he knows for a fact that none of them is religious, and none of them care about kosher. He knows them one by one. Does he allow to buy them what they buy anyway? The answer is no. Why? Even though they would buy it anyway, if it was up to them, they had the option, they'll buy non-kosher, because it's cheaper, they think, at least they think. The answer is, you're not allowed to serve to another Jew non-kosher food. Not in your store, not in your home, not in his home. If he tells you, get me uh, from the fridge this drink, and you open the fridge and you see this drink is not kosher, and you have to pour for him now, you're not allowed. Now what happens if he's your boss? and it's a big shot, and you're afraid just standing near him in the same room, and he tells you, get me this drink from the closet. If you tell him no, you start giving him religious speech, you know he's gonna fire you right away. If you're not strong enough, you put it on the table. Don't serve it to his hand, let him take it. That's also not good, but at least it's not as bad as actually putting it in his own hand. There's levels. Putting it in his mouth is the worst. <laughs> Putting it in his hand, it's second worst. Putting it on the table next to him, it's a third worst. Just like in Bishul, Klirishon, Klishani, Klishlishi, just in murder, the same thing. Killing a person directly, taking a knife, sticking it in his heart. It's the worst level of murder, which subject to execution by the Jewish court. But if you didn't stab the knife in him, which means you put the knife in the ceiling, and you took a stone and you threw it on the knife and the knife fell right into his heart. Grama, not a direct killing, it's already not execution. Or if you tie him to a tree in front of a hungry lion, if you grab the mouth of the lion and push it to his neck and the lion beat him, then you're a murderer, execution. But if you left the lion in a room, hungry, and it's obvious the lion will eat him. But you did not actually attach the death, the weapon, into his body. That's called mavet begrama. Of course, you're a murderer. Don't start making plans. <laughs> <laughs> for Hashem, you're the same murderer. But for the Jewish Bedin, as far as execution, they don't have permission to execute you. Unless if it's the king, and the king saw that people becoming wise guys, and that the king can say, from now on, everyone will do it, any kind of trick and killing, I will kill him myself. King is above the court, which I say a few times in the past. So we answer a very common thing. Now let's see some few other interesting things. You know, it used to be Rav Shach, Rosh Yeshivat Ponovich. So he had a guy in his yeshiva. So one time Rav Shach asked him, tell me, why are you not getting married? You're already 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Should have been married by now. You're a good guy. You're healthy. You learn very good. Come from a normal, good family. So why are you not married? Rav Shach asked him. So he told him, Rabbi, I'm still looking for my avedah. Avedah means the lost object, the lost item. In this case, the, the lost item is the woman that belongs to him. This is the way he presented it. So Rav Shach told him, if you're really looking for the lost item, for the Avedah, you would find it a long time ago. The problem is you're not looking for Avedah, you're looking for Metziah. 
What does it mean, Aveda and Metzia? Aveda, it means something that got lost. And Metzia means something that you found, something lost that you found. It's really the same thing, but depends how you present it. Metzia means, the Gemara says, 13 comes to a person, Be'esechadat. Esechadat means just when you are not ready for it. You're busy with what you do, all of a sudden, it caught you not ready. Three things. One, scorpion. You all of a sudden feel a sharp needle in your ankle. You turn around, you see a yellow, black scorpion, you know, one of these deadly killers. You're starting to say it, Gadal, it, Kadash, Say Kaddish on yourself. Uh, you know, there's no, that's it. Right, do you call the lawyer? Hey, Mr. Cohen, quickly, five million over there, call their account number, that's <laughs> He died in the middle of the number. The, the lawyer said, no, what's the other three digits? Why? <laughs> black scorpion, black and yellow. The killer one. Poison one. Then the other one, the Gemara say, finding a lost object, a wallet full of cash. Ah, oh, got lucky. Money on the, on the floor. And the third thing, Mashiach. Mashiach, what does it mean, Mashiach? One guy is in 47th Street, shining the diamond, he just sold somebody. Mr. Smith, wait. You know, Mr. Gavrielov now is checking, put steam, clean the diamond, all of a sudden, see, breaking news. Something is happening in Jerusalem. The Olive Mountain is breaking now to two. There's an earthquake in Jerusalem, and the Israeli reporters are saying that something religious is going on. <laughs> they all of a sudden see Rabbi on a donkey. Some people say, you really believe the Mashiach would come on a donkey in a generation we have a Rolls Royce limousine? <laughs> it's the biggest embarrassment. Is it literal or no? What the Gemara says, Mashiach come on Hamor. Is it literal or it's a parable? Is it like a secret mashal? The truth is, it could be either way. Mashal, for sure it could be. Why? What does it mean, Rochev al Hamor? Hamor means Homer, materialism. The Mashiach comes sitting, putting down the donkey. The Mashiach would come only to people who loved Hashem more than physical pleasure. They are the righteous one, not someone who is addicted to his whiskey bottle and jewelry and nice, beautiful Mercedes. For them, the Mashiach said, go back to your beautiful suite. You and Hashem has no connection. This is the nimshal of the Mashal. But it could be definitely literal. Why? How exactly is going to drive the Rolls Royce limousine in a mountain full of rocks? Especially when the Arabs made it all cemetery. Many Muhammads and Ahmeds are there. Why the Arabs made the, the Alif, Harazaytim, Alif Mountain a cemetery? Because they read in the Torah that if a Kohen goes into a cemetery, it makes him impure. So say, if the Jews know that their Mashiach would come from the mountain of the olives, and we make it all full of graves, even if the Mashiach come, right away we'll force him to become Tameh. And he lose all his power. But there's two problems the Arabs did not calculate. One, it was only talking about Jewish graves, not graves of Arabs. And the second thing is, Mashiach is not a Kohen. With all due respect, when it's important, Mashiach is a different level. 
So therefore, the graves that they put over there, they only justify the words of the Gemara that he will have to come on a donkey because he cannot drive the fancy Rolls Royce that one of the rich Jews would, would offer him. <laughs> Rabbi Ben David, son of David, no? Mashiach Ben David, Rabbi Ben David, wait, wait, I'll send you my private limo. So how exactly I'm going to drive your limo in between the Arab graves? That has to be a donkey. <laughs> or maybe Hashem would want to send a message to the world. You make the world very advanced and very fancy, and every week another phone comes to the world, and another computer, and a new car, and this, and a new plane, and a new, and no, 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 no. For me, the world is the same world like the time of Avraham Avinu. Another answer for that is that Hashem said that the donkey of Avraham Avinu is the same donkey that was created in Ben Hashmashot. Between Friday and Saturday, there's 13 and a half minutes between sunset to the appearance of the stars in Israel. In America, it's longer. But in Israel, it's 13 and a half minutes. So these 13 and a half minutes, it's called Ben Hashmashot. Shmashot means Shemesh. The beginning of the sunset to the end of the sunset, when you begin to see the stars, there's a period of half day, half night. It's not clear what it is. That territory, when you don't know if it's the previous day or it's the next day already, it's a question, can be used for both. Depend. Depend if it's a rabbinical law or it's a mitzvah from the Torah. You always have to go by the Torah to the strict side. By rabbinical law, you go to the lenient side. There's all, it's like simple math. There's really no room for mistakes here. What's this mitzvah? It's, it's an obligation of bracha levatala, to say the name of Hashem in vain. That's, a, that's, a, that's maybe a sin from the Torah. We don't take the risk. We don't make the bracha. Oh, it's an obligation to do brit milah. We have to do it. Oh, it falls on Shabbat. There's a, there's a doubt. We're not allowed to be mechalel Shabbat because of a doubt. And in a case like this, okay, so it will be on Sunday. So there's rules about it. What to do, when to do. So the question is now that the Pirkei Avot said that 10 things were made in Ben Hashmashot. One of the things is this donkey, the same donkey that Avraham Avinu, Vayachavoshet Chamoro, that Avraham used that donkey. Same donkey that Mashiach would come. It's all one donkey, some kind of a spiritual donkey, whatever that means. So going back to what I say, the Gemara says three things comes to a person when he's not ready for it. Finding a lost object, a scorpion, and Mashiach. So the, the question is, why only three? I can give you three million things now. Who comes by surprise, right? A letter from the IRS, it's not a surprise. <laughs> Come home happy, you had a good day at work, you check your mail, Mr. X, we're waiting for you. <laughs> what happened? You don't even make it from the mailbox to the house. So your wife looked from the window of the kitchen, why is my husband splashing himself in the snow? <laughs> he just got a heart attack. <laughs> he got a bad letter, he cannot make it to the house, he crawled. Call Atzala, why? Or accident. Or any kind of terrorism attack. So many things comes by surprise. Why the Gemara gave three? You know, when the Gemara speaks about it, it's always very deep. The Gemara wanted to emphasize one thing. When Mashiach comes, it's definitely going to be a big shock to the whole world. Because most of the world are not believers. 
They don't even believe in Hashem. And those who believe in Hashem, believe in their own Hashem, not the Hashem of the Torah. The Hashem that they created in their illusions and imaginations. You understand? The Hashem of the Torah and their Hashem, it's two different Hashems. Their Hashem is the one who will forgive all their sins and let them do whatever they want. Not the same Hashem that we know from the Torah. But it's not only that, that those who finally believe in Hashem still do not believe in the Torah. There's no connection. You can believe in God. God is watching, God is helping, God is even punishing. But it doesn't connect God to the Torah. So now you have, to know, you have to make him believe in Hashem, and then to believe in a Torah, and then to believe in the oral Torah, and then to believe in the power of the Chachamim, and then to believe in Shulchan Aruch. And now, after you make him believe all that, he's still a very rational person. Rabbi, I'm not in a, in a, living in imagination and dreams. I'm a very rational person. I don't believe in stories and fairy tales, which is very good. It's good that people would be rational. But the problem is, there is something that called in Judaism emunah, faith, confidence in Hashem, which is goes together. And there is something that called reality. And usually, faith and confidence in Hashem and reality are two total opposites, complete opposites. Right? Give you an example. People come to Bet HaMikdash in Shlosha Regalim. How many people you can fit in a building like the size of Bet HaMikdash? Thousand, two thousand, like sardines. But many more are fitting in, and there's also when they do modim, there is space between them. Reality, if you call the fire department, they check the place, maximum capacity, two thousand people. Or less. In reality, hundred thousand more coming in, and they still have space. How is it possible? There is reality, and there is the reality of Hashem. There is what the Torah say, and that's what we see in our own eyes. For instance, a person is saying, I'm going to go now to yeshiva and leave work. Now when I work, I hardly make it. I have two or three children. I have to pay mortgage. I have to pay expenses. I need six, seven, ten thousand dollars a month. Leaving their work and go to yeshiva, and they will do me a favor and give me $500 a month. What is my chance to survive? The answer is zero. This is reality. Reality. Now we move from the world of reality to the world of the Torah. What does the Torah say? His world of Torah, because he lives in both worlds. He lived in this world, is what he sees. En lanu et and at the same time, he lives connected to the Torah. So now, in a world of reality, all he hears is people, rational people, not stupid people, rational people. Don't do that mistake. You're crazy. Your children will starve to death in a month. It's going it's to destroy your house. How are you going to eat? What are you going to eat? Eh? Lots of very logical answers. Then he said to himself, but wait one second. This is like a fight between the Yetzer Ara and the Yetzer Atov, a conversation, a debate. So his evil inclination comes right away and says, hey, 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 you want to leave everything, go to Yeshiva? How are you going to pay the mortgage? In two weeks, the, the payment is due. As it is now, you're hardly making the payment. One month, you're bankrupt. Comes the Yetzer Atov, say, he has a point, the evil inclination, 
But let me ask you a question. How old are you, sir? Forty. From the day you were born until now, did you ever have something you didn't have? You had food? Yes. You had oxygen? Yes. You have a place to sleep? Yes. Everything you ever had, you have. Some, there used to be periods of time that you got fired for a few months, you did not work, times was very hard. Four years later today, you're up to date? Yes. So how did it happen? So right away, the Yetzirah jump again. So wait. <laughs> Just because it happens some miracles to some people doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. Some people got lucky. But who's to say that you got lucky? The Yetzirah Atov jump and say, wait, I'll take you on a tour to Yeshiva or Israel in Monsi. 25 years in business. More than a thousand people learn there. Easy, more than a thousand, much more. And they all, almost all of them eventually got married, established homes, put their children in yeshivot, and even some of them had cars. And they learned for good few good years, and sometimes even 15, 20 years they learned there. And they survive, and they live just as good as many people who go to work and kill themselves in traffic every day, and go to Manhattan, and get all the aggravation of war. And all of them made it. Not one starved to death. This is the Yetzirah say. Now, when they went to the yeshiva, what was their chance? Zero. In reality, you're right. Zero. But Hashem doesn't go by statistic. This is the whole point here. Rationally, you're a million percent right. But the reality of Hashem, what's the, what happened in Mitzrayim? If we judged Egypt with the rationalism based on the law of nature, based on what can happen and cannot happen, based on what are the odds statistically, we would never believe one thing that happened. How can it be? Or in the desert for 40 years, or going to the war against a trained army like Amalek with no army, with no massive weapon. We didn't have the horses, we didn't have their training. They already know the desert very well. They come, they ambushed us. And we have our children and wives right there. We're not ready for combat. And what happened? We win. When we do what Hashem wants, we won. So in reality, we see that if you go by the world of nature and you're, you're very rational, you're actually losing, you're not gaining. Yes, in the end, you come in front of Hashem, every one of your answers will be fully rational, makes sense, and you get a hundred on the mark. In the end, you get zero. <laughs> Hashem says, okay, yeah. You know, it's like they say in Israel, in, in Israel, you're right, but over here, no one will justify you. Or they say to you on the road, don't be right, be smart. You want to be right, you'll be dead. You'll be right, but dead. Better you'll be smart, and alive, then right and dead. Same thing over here. If you think that everything goes by numbers and odds and how many hours you're gonna work and da 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 and how much education you're gonna have, and this is how you wanna live your life, you might as well be a goy. That's the way the goyim lives. Makes sense, doesn't make sense, how many hours, everything by them is calculated. How much this boy gonna cost me, how much college would cost me, they begin to say from now in 20 years, for the time of college. Hashem doesn't want the Jews to live like that. 
everything calculated. This is for Moishi. Let's begin to put. This is for Yitzchak. This is for that. This is for the wedding of Miriam. This is for the wedding of Sarah. This is this. All of a sudden, shh. Right away, storm comes. Madoff showed up. What happened to Sarah? What happened to this? What happened to all these people? Nothing. Why? Because Hashem has his plans. Do you understand what's happening here? So the question is why to some people it's scorpion and to some people it's finding a lost object. The answer is when Mashiach comes, some people, ah, we waited 2,000 years for this moment. Right? This is the messenger of God. We waited for him for so long. Nagila v'nismecha. Now it's time to joy. But the other ones, they will see him in CNN for five minutes. And then CNN become, the, the screen become all snow. And the salvation of the world begins. But what do we say? Uva Sion goel leshave pesha beyakov. The Savior comes to those who made tshuva, repentance. And if that person did not make tshuva, Mashiach for him will be a pure scorpion. Pure scorpion. Remember what I said before, you'll have two, three minutes, five minutes to call the lawyer to try to make last arrangements, and that's it. There's nothing to do. After Mashiach comes, there's no way to do tshuva. That's the whole concept here. Why not? Give them another five minutes to do tshuva. Last chance. Fair, no? Last chance. No. What is the whole test? That's it. The test is over. The, the, the teacher told you, 10, 0, 0, everyone has to put their pen down. So now it's 10.05. Give me another five minutes. What's going to be? No. It's not fair for the others. Rules are rules. Once everyone sees Mashiach, of course they would want to be tzaddikim. Right? Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, remember I told you one day I'll be Shomer Shabbat? Here, now I am. Reserve a seat for me for Shabbat. Of course, here Mashiach on CNN. <laughs> rabbi, Rabbi, remember the check I gave you once with a, with a, when I wrote on it a million dollars, but the pen was evaporating <laughs> after you got the check. Now I made a new one with a real pen. Give me a chance. Ah, too late, my friend. That's the whole point. Some people, Mashiach, would be a lost object. Ah, I found a treasure. What a nice surprise, pleasant surprise. For some people, it will be a scorpion. One woman came to a delivery room to give birth, and the doctor said that she's very sad. So he said, why are you so upset? You worry, you already gave birth a few times. He's, the, he's a personal doctor. I already deliver you a few times. It's not the first time you're here. So she said, no, doctor, I already gave birth to six girls. And my husband, you know, he has his mentality. He wants boys. He didn't get one boy yet. I'm very worried that this one will be also a girl. So I tell you why I'm worried. My husband told me if it's a girl, make sure you don't come back from the hospital. 
find a place to, to, to live. How can I not be worried? So, so the doctor, he, he got shocked. He heard such a thing. He said, don't worry, I promise you I'll make it up. I'll make it work out. I'll make it work. Relax. And of course, she gave birth to a girl, <laughs> seven in a row. And the doctor called that, that uh, father. He said, listen, Mr. X, yes, I, I have to invite you to my office in a, in a hospital. So what happened? Everything OK? He said, we have to talk about it. Now this father is hard beginning to <laughs> accelerate. 50, 60, 70, 80 a minute. So he said, doctor, just tell me. Tell me the truth. I can handle it. Tell me what happened. My wife gave birth. She gave birth, yes. No, what is it? He said, listen, we have to talk about it. No, no, no. There's nothing to talk about. Just tell me what it is, a boy or a girl. Say, listen, it's a boy. Rely. Oh, finally. Say, well, but there's a problem. That's why I'm calling you to come. Wait, wait, don't get me scared. Say, listen, there's a reason to be scared. That's why I'm telling you, come quickly to the hospital. So he said to him, okay, I'm on my way. The guy drove 200 miles an hour. He gets to the hospital. He runs quickly. I see the doctor sitting like this. Doctor, what happened? Why are you making me nervous? So do you think I would call you for nothing? What, to drink Lechaim with you? That you finally had a boy? I have other things to do. So what happened? He said, listen, as a boy, we just made the regular exams now. We suspect that there's few problems with that boy. One kidney is big, one kidney is small. One side of the brain is developing, the other one is not. One leg is folding like this, we're afraid he doesn't have a birth defect. And the other leg is, so come on, doctor, how many problems? He <laughs> said, that's only the beginning. We suspect that it's already created a lot of complications now. We're just checking. And listen, the way it looks right now, this baby would need at least eight surgeries. We're not even sure if you're going to make it. The guys begin to scream, ah, finally a boy, and this is what I got. He said to him, I think that God is punishing you for the way he spoke to your wife before she gave birth. How do you know about this? Your wife was all crying, nervous. You told her, if it's a girl, don't come back. Wouldn't you want now a healthy girl? You would replace this boy with all these problems for a healthy girl. You give everything for it, right? A million dollar check. If you can reverse it and get a healthy girl, you would get it? You say, 10 million, Rabbi, uh, doctor, 10 million. He said, you got it for free. Mazal <laughs> tov, <laughs> it's a girl, but healthy what? So this guy started to scream, yes, why are you playing games? So he said to his wife, look how happy he is that he has a girl. <laughs> Doctor, you're a magician. <laughs> how did you do this? You're a magician. What do you see from this story? It's not what you get. It's how you evaluate it correctly. How many people say thank you for walking on the street? How many times? Eh, one time you see a person in a wheelchair cannot open a door to the bank. He has to make a, a, a deposit, and he can't open the door, and he's in the snow, 1 o'clock at night by the ATM machine, because he cannot open the door. Finally, a customer came to the bank, so he has to open both doors for him, that he can walk in. And then after that, he said, wow, imagine if I was like this. 
even something so simple that I do every two, three days without thinking about it, all of a sudden you appreciate your legs. That's, by the way, the reason why Hashem made the world with the concept of a rule. Every, every, every field has a rule, but every rule has an exception to the rule. There's rules, but there's always a, like a 0.0 something percent which is different than the rule. Always. Why? So the Torah teaching, the exception to the rule, did not come to indicate about itself. It came to point, to indicate about the general rule. The one who came out of the rule is teaching us not about it, about the rule. How does it teach about the rule? But you see what went wrong, you learn how to appreciate that rule and not take it for granted. Same thing blind. People, yeah, I see. No, what's the big deal? Almost everyone see what? Yeah, spend one hour with a person that cannot see. Do you know how your eyes will be valuable to you? Same thing, money. Person who grew up with money, 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 takes it for granted. I always had money. His parents rich, always had what you want. His father put him in a good business. Money comes always. Or the one times in his life that he will be in a situation that he's tight and doesn't have, he will appreciate how lucky he was until now. Until now, he never appreciated. Same thing health. Health, same thing. And many other things. One con artist comes to a person, a currency exchanger, a person that changed in Israel. You have the Georgian Jews, they stand on the corners of the street and exchange dollar for shekel or shekel for dollar. That's, that's, some of them, this is their business. Not like here, they sit in the airport in a fancy room and you and they kill you on the price over here in the airport, 15% fee, and then they give you much less than what it's worth. Over there, they're pretty decent. They make few shekel profit, 1%, 2%. It's tons of transactions on the street. You come, $1,000, he gives you shekel. He makes few shekel profit. That's how they make their living on the street. Don't need office, no, no expense. I don't know if it's still like that, but that's how it was 30 years ago. Still like this? <laughs> Some things, I guess, never change. <laughs> so... He comes to this, uh, the con artist comes to this, one of these guys, offer him $100,000 fake. But he tells him that it's fake. Say, I have $100,000, perfect imitation. No one can tell that it's not real. <laughs> so he say, and all I want is you give me $30,000 real dollars and take these 100,000 fake ones, which I promise you no one would ever know that it's not real. Even you put it in a machine, the machine will tell you they're real. That's how perfect is this imitation. So he said to him, here, I'll give you, I'll show you an example of the fake money. So he showed him some of them. Say, here, go to the bank, to the machine, check. Go inside the bank. So he goes inside the machine. They're not suspecting. They're counting the money. So yeah, well, how much you want? Check it, what do you want? Passed by the bank exam.
So he said to him, why? So why are you only offering me 100,000? Do you have more? He said, yeah, I have 200,000. So okay, let me give you 60,000. Give me 200,000 fake one. So he gave him 60,000. And he gave him 200,000 fake ones. Right after that, a policeman showed up. A policeman showed up. And he said to him, what do you have in the suitcase here? He said, money, what? How much money? Open it. <laughs> it's 200,000 fake dollars. The policeman said, open it. This guy knew that if the policeman will now check his ID, it's 20 years in prison. Fake money and such big amount fake on him. He left the suitcase with the 200,000 fake dollars and ran. Started to run. <laughs> so far, you got the story? Now get ready for the shock. Later, it was found that this policeman is <laughs> like in Purim. You know how the kids dress like policemen? <laughs> it was also one of the con artists. It's a part of the group. And apparently this $200,000 was real dollars. That's why the bank approved it. <laughs> the machines are good enough to know what's fake and what not. So as soon as he took 60 real thousand from him, from, from this poor Georgian, and the Georgian gave him that 200,000, he gave him 200,000, and he gave him 60,000 real one. The 200,000 that was in his hand, Stayed on the street and he ran away. So they just made sixty thousand dollars. These two, two crooks in a minute. This is a story that really happened, in reality. So why am I telling you this? Now it ended up in a court. What's the white handed up in a court? The guy say, I don't want, he says like this, I don't want my $60,000 back. I want the 200,000. I bought the 200,000 with my 60. Don't give me 60 back. The whole 200 is mine, in Bedin now. They, they offered him the 60,000 back because they called him. So he said, no, no, why should I get the 60 back? With my 60, I bought that suitcase. And the suitcase had $200,000 in it. And I, and I only bought it because I know that $200,000, fake or not fake, it doesn't matter. They have the power to buy me anything that worth $200,000. That's the only reason I gave the 60. So for me, the deal is the same deal. I gave 60 to gain a piece of paper that will buy me a brand new Mercedes that cost 200,000. That was my plan. And I still intend to buy that car. The other, the, 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 the crooks, they say, what are you talking about? <laughs> We're offering you back your 60,000, say thank you and goodbye. <laughs> you wanna make profit on us? <laughs> What do you think the answer is? You have to admit, you never saw it coming. <laughs> huh? 
טוב, ג'ורג'יאנס זה very smart. That's the one is 60 by one. I bought 200,000. So what happened? what is the ruling of the bed in? No? He gets the 200 or no? No, what do you think? If he, if he really knew that this, these money, this money is real, he knows that this deal would have never occurred. Very good. That's the answer. All he gets back is his 60,000. And the deal wasn't legal, naturally wasn't legal. Nobody gives real 200,000 in exchange to 60. It's not a fair deal. It's like you come to buy a diamond and they say to you $20. And then later you come to court and you claim that you thought it's a real diamond. He fooled me. He fooled me. I went to buy a diamond, he gave me a cubic zirconia. So they tell him, mister, how much you paid for that diamond? He said, $19.99. Dollars. So the judge said, get him out of my face, this idiot. <laughs> Just get him out of here. Why? Why? Maybe he's so, he's so dumb he really thought it's a diamond. We don't care what you thought. We don't care. What do we care? <laughs> we only care what the way of the world is. The way of the world. Let's go one more case and we're finished. Rav Schneor Kotler went on a journey to collect money for the yeshiva. The family Kotler, the father, the son, and the grandson, already back-to-back -back are the Rosh Yeshiva of Lakewood Yeshiva, which is one of the biggest yeshivot in the world, in Lakewood, New Jersey. The whole, uh, the whole town of Lakewood, New Jersey, became fully orthodox thanks to that yeshiva. They opened up the yeshiva and the whole town became religious. This is usually how it goes. Once you set a yeshiva and a shul, people begin to come. Once people begin to come, then they open stores, kosher stores, and more and more people moving in. And eventually, after 50 years, you have a big city full of thousands of thousands of firm people. So he goes on a journey with his assistant to collect money. The assistant wants to skip one house of a very wealthy person. Rav Schneor told him, why? Why do you want to skip this beautiful house? He said, ah, I know this guy is very stingy. He never gives anything. Let's now waste an hour there now. We sit there, give us a cup of tea, two cookies from five years ago, and then in the end, he'll give us $18. Well, Rabbi, we need to collect money. We have 5,000 Talmidim. Even though in his days, he wasn't 5,000 like today. Even still, a few hundred is still a lot. You have to raise a lot of money. So he said to him, no, no, I want to go to this stingy one, like you say. I want to go to his house. 
So he went in. So he told him, in the time of the war, my father paid to a goy that would smuggle him with few people across the border from the mountains. Why? They wanted to kill the Jews. So the Jews were looking for a getaway, how they can escape. So there's one guy who knows the mountains. He knows how to cross the border without getting caught. So he said, my father paid that guy to smuggle him over the border to save his life. In the middle of the night, my father realized he forgot his tefillin. Now they're already in the mountain, middle of the night. He wants to go back to get the tefillin. The guy told him, you, you, you're a dead man. It's 90% dead. You know, it's, <laughs> we're already risking our life. Now you're going to go back to catch you. So he said to him, I know. It's not your responsibility. I paid you. Whatever I paid you, I paid you. You did your job. Now it's my problem. And he went back to get the tefillin. By the time he went back to get the tefillin, it became already a day, sunrise. It's more dangerous because they see a Jew. They're looking for Jews everywhere, searching in the areas to find Jews. So now when he has the tefillin, he's trying to hide in a place. So he saw an owner of a ranch. There's some ranch over there. So he told him, is it possible that I stay in your house for a few hours until it will get dark? So he said, yeah, you can be in the back. There's a shed over there, a room. You can sit over there like a storage room. You can, see, you can, do, you can be there. So he, put my, so he told him, he puts his tefillin on, and he sat there over there. What is he going to do? Learning Torah. Sit and learn. All of a sudden, the owner of the ranch showed up into that storage room. And he was shocked. He asked him, are you a Jew? So he told him, yes. Like, I thought it's obvious that I'm asking you to hide. Like, what are you, what are you so surprised? So he told him, my mother was Jewish. The owner of the ranch tells him, my mother was Jewish. He got so excited. So he told him, tell me, did you ever put this tefillin on you in your whole life? So he said, no, never. So he, made, he, he put tefillin on him. He told him what to say. First time in his life, this Jew said, put tefillin on. And then, the father, after that, was able somehow to cross the border anyway. Few years later, he said that he went to sleep. This is Rav Shneur Kotler saying the story to the stingy person that the Gabai wanted to skip. And I sit in his house and he tells him the story. So he said, after my father put filin on this person on a ranch, a few years later, when my father already crossed the, the border and everything, this Jew from the ranch came to him in a dream. 
And he said to him, you know, by now I'm not alive anymore. I'm dead already. And my situation in a court of heaven was horrible. Until the day arrived, they go one day after the other, hour by hour, this is how the judgment is. When we arrive to the day that I let you hide in my storage, and then you put this tefillin on me, everything turned around. All the complaints that I never put tefillin and all these things, everything turned around. And it made my situation a lot easier. So after the stingy person heard that story, it opened up his heart and he gave them a very big check. An hour later, if we come to him later, then the check will go back to be $18, because this is the way the Yetzer arise. But in a moment like this, he opened up his heart by telling him that story. So he told him, look at this mitzvah, how it saved the Jew. We coming here to ask for me to give money to the yeshiva for Torah, which is much more important than one-time tefillin. Thousands of mitzvot every day with your money, more. Well, that's how he ended up giving them money. So we see, even, uh, even to get money out of the rock, once in a while it's possible. Because after all, after you, you remove the klipot, all the yetzerara that surround the soul, you clean, you clean, you clean one layer and another layer and another, you penetrate to the soul, stingy, evil, all kinds of things. Heart of a Jew is the heart of a Jew. Gave him a check in the end. First time he ever gave a check. Because he was well known as someone who doesn't want to give to everyone. He was wealthy, but he got it out of him. This is what the Gemara says, You know what it means, betachbulot In a war, it doesn't go by who is, who is stronger. It goes by who is smarter. Who is smarter. What does it mean who is smarter? That if you make all kinds of tricks, even if you don't have that many soldiers, but you're clever like he was in Israeli war, there was this Yemenite commander named Avigdor Kahalani. He only had three tanks against hundreds of Egyptians who were coming towards him, hundreds. So the, <laughs> the Yemenites are very sharp as it is. And he was in a chief in the army. He moved the tank to this corner, shoot one. Right away, he drives to the other side, shoot another one. Drive to the middle, shoot three tanks. They're moving constantly, so it looks that the Israelis are waiting for us, but they're all over. Right? Or the way, one of the ways they fight, when they go to attack somewhere in Lebanon, they first send four or five soldiers to one area like a base of terrorists. So they're, they're ready. There are guards over there. They're always ready for an attack. So what happened? When those four or five coming, they shoot, they threw some granites, this. So right away, hundreds of Arabs starting to scream, Allah Akbar. They all run towards them. Then the rest of the soldiers come from the back, blow up the place, and they're already surrounded, and that's how they win the war. So the idea is not just to come 50 against 50, who is stronger? No, it can be 50 against 200. If you're smart, it gives you a leverage. I heard there was a, someone told me two days ago, three days ago, 
that he saw a fight of a guy, 150 pound karate fight, boxing, whatever he was, I don't know, against a guy who weighs 700 pounds. He said, <laughs> if you see the way the guy was, you never believe such thing. Looks like an elephant. <laughs> 700 pounds, 300 and something kilogram. You know what we're talking here about? 700 and tall. And the other guy says skinny and short. No, it's like David and Goliath. <laughs> and who won in the end? The skinny one. <laughs> he said, how he won? He was trying, he was tired, he was making him tired. He ran around. The whole round, he say, he just ran around him. And he, he keeps going like this. After a while, he say, he finally got closer to him, and this big guy just pulled him like a feather on the floor and choked him. That's it. It looks like it's over, but what was the problem? The, 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 the big guy, he said to me, he didn't think about one thing. Yeah, you can choke him, but you need, you need X amount of time until surrender. And that time was giving him punches to the head. He started to bleed all over his face. And in the end, the big guy surrendered. In other words, he did not calculate correctly the thing. Just because you're big and you're strong and you plan to sit on him and choke him. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, we had one guy in a, in a school, an elementary school. He was a huge guy. And you know how kids, kids sometimes are evil without realizing that they are. And everyone was picking on him. So there, everyone knew you can pick on him as long as you're on a movement because he's not fast enough. But if you stop and he grab you, that's the end of you. So guess what happened to me, the genius? <laughs> I wanted to show the other kids that I'm brave. Until today, I suffer. He grabbed me. He sat on me 15 minutes eating his sandwich. <laughs> he sits on me and I beg for my life. Get up. Doesn't care. He sits on me and eating his lunch. And no one, is, no one dares to come near him. He knows his advantage. And that's like this. Ezrat Hashem. Purim comes, take advantage. Purim, Yom Kippurim is like Purim. Kepurim. With prayers, especially in Mincha of Yom Kippur, everything you ask from Hashem, there's a very high chance to get accepted. Baruch Adonai Lo'olam, Amen v'Amen.